So to summarise then the last few weeks then, so our goal in all of this is not a feminist agenda <coughs> and it's not even a fairness agenda that we are fully convinced and persuaded that this is a Holy Spirit agenda and the belief and the conviction that the Holy Spirit is free to give gifts of leadership to both men and women who are called by him, gifted by him, made competent by him and have a godly character that they've developed in relationship with him. And so our ultimate goal then is what we're convinced of is a leadership model that is a kingdom model. We believe a kingdom model emphasises mutual submission, that submission to one another. That we are convinced that the Bible doesn't talk about leaders, whether they be male or female, having authority over people, but authority for people to release them into their gifts, callings, abilities and anointings. And so we've been talking about, we're not looking to build a hierarchical leadership, that we're actually seeking as a local church to regain what was lost through the fall. And remember in week two we looked at Genesis and we looked at one of the curses which was your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And we believe that Galatians clearly teaches that when Jesus died, he became a curse for us and took the curses on him. And so part of the belief and the expectation is that Christ wants to see regained in his church a partnership that was originally lost because of the fall. That Jesus wants to cause there to be a recapturing of an expression of interdependence between men and women or mutuality <coughs> and there needs to be a celebration of the diversity of both male and female that both men and women are unique reflectors of the glory of God and so it's not a blurring or a, a getting rid of the diversity expression rather it's a celebration of expression and a lifting of everyone up. Doesn't 1 Timothy 2.12 say that a women cannot teach or have authority over a man? Isn't that because Adam was created first? It's from 1 Timothy 2.11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man, she must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became the sinner, or became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. So I want to look at um, these verses. And first... Talk about the fact that whenever we're coming to the Bible, that we need to be aware of the context in which the letter was written. So this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, a pastor in Ephesus. And so as we're interpreting that, we need to take into account the background and the backdrop if we're to interpret it correctly. So Paul in this letter is addressing specific concerns. So when he's writing these words, his words have an intention, they have a goal, and they have a target, and they have a very specific aim. Paul is addressing issues and problems and concerns in a very particular location in what is happening in the church of Ephesus. <coughs> and we know historically that Ephesus was the centre for the cult of Artemis. And we know that one of the beliefs of the cult or the religion was that women were superior to men. And so people were being saved out of a culture in which they believed 
women were superior to men. And so what's happening in the church at the time is that there are false teachers throughout the community. People are teaching false doctrine, things that are not true. And Paul is bringing specifically a correction to the church because some of the people who were spreading false teaching and false doctrine were women who had previously not been educated in either um, (coughs) education in a sense of schooling education or education in the faith. Because if you remember, um, women in that culture, in that society, were not considered as those who needed an education. And so Paul is addressing the fact that women are propagating false teaching. And one of the things that Paul is very concerned to do, and what these verses are designed to do, he's concerned to stop the flow of the poison that is destroying that local church. Part of his intention in 1 Timothy is to stop anything that is killing love, unity and peace between people. So a list of some of the things that's going on that you can read later on are there's false teaching throughout the church community, including instructions on law and ancestry. That's in 1 Timothy 1, 4, 7 to 11. There's teaching going on that's saying you should abstain from marriage and certain foods and focus on myths and knowledge. There's anger and quarrelling between the men going on in the community. That's in, he talks about that in 2.8. There's immodest dress amongst the women. He talks about the way they're dressed that was inappropriate in this community. He says that there were women professing spirituality whilst living and practicing an otherwise life. There was unsubmissive. There was unsubmissive or argumentative learning amongst the women. There was unrest because of what the women were teaching. There was unrest because of how the women were exercising authority over men. Women were being deceived. There was confusion around traditional roles of mothering and childbearing amongst the women. Widows in the community were bringing unnecessary financial strain on the community and some of those women were propagating error. There was friction, envy, slander and and suspicion amongst the community. Would you want to be part of that local church? (laughs) A lot going on in Ephesus. And so Paul is writing to a church that's really in crisis. And so we have to ask, would these particular instructions given in chapter 2 and 9 to 15, would those instructions have been given to this community were it not for the backdrop and the context and what was going on? Would Paul have had to say, I do not permit a woman to, to teach or have authority over a man if there was not a problem of false teaching being propagated by women who were taking authority over a man and spreading lies and half-truths. So this chapter then is specifically corrective to a specific location, but there's still the reality that all scripture is God-breathed and useful. So even though it's to a specific context and a specific culture and a specific moment, there are things we can still draw out from it. So Paul is looking at this community and he's saying it's lacking peace, it's lacking quietness, and being peaceable. So quietness is actually not about not speaking, it's about being peaceable. So he's always attacking things that are destroying love, unity, and peace. So the way women were speaking was undermining (coughs) peace. And submission is actually about Agreement that community would have peace between one another as they agree on the central doctrines of who Christ is and how we're to outwork this reality in life. And so Paul is addressing dominion, division, quarrelling and anything that undermines peace and unity. Paul is writing to Timothy instructions for promoting and guarding 
peace. Because how women were in that moment learning and teaching and exercising authority was not promoting peace, it was creating dominion, division and quarrelling. It was addressing that. In other words, effective learning, so it's not about women not learning, he wants them to learn. He's saying effective learning is only possible when your heart is in a place of submission. That you can't learn anything new if you're not peaceable and submitted to the one instructing you who has more knowledge than you. In other words, it is very hard to learn if you are the one doing all the talking. (laughs) So the interpretation of these verses must be taken in the context that they were written. Surely Paul can't be teaching and instructing a ban on women teaching and exercising gifting in all contexts. If it's a universal command to not teach or exercise the gift of leadership or authority, why are there so many women in different parts of the New Testament doing just that? As Paul, as someone said, Paul would have to be suffering from some kind of schizophrenia, that he would be having to talk about Ephesus different to how he is doing it all over the place. And we've got examples of those that we've looked at in previous weeks. So he's not anti-speaking, he's anti-divisiveness. So, people then ask, was this verse then a (coughs) prohibition or a forbidding or a legal statement intended for all places at all times, for all cultures and all situations? Or are they just instructions to deal with the problems of a specific church in a specific moment. Our conviction is it's a little like martial law, when you have military control. Sometimes it's necessary for nations to experience military control in moments of crisis and division and hostility and danger. But that is not the way society ideally is to run on all occasions, only in times of crisis. So then it comes to the question of why does Paul then refer to Adam? And Adam was the one, um, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. What do you make of that? Doesn't that completely contradict your week to preach? (laughs) So Paul is attaching Genesis into this verse as a powerful illustration of why women at this time should first learn well And then speak. So women in Ephesus were teaching and leading illegitimately because they didn't understand, they hadn't been taught, and they were leading with a type of authority that was domineering, controlling, and divisive. Women in Ephesus were teaching and leading illegitimately. And consequently, because of a lack of learning, were leading people into Deception. You are only at risk of deception if your understanding of truth is lacking. That is why Paul wants women to learn accurately first. The illustration is this. Eve was dependent in the context of creation and the garden... She was dependent in that context of creation order to be taught the instructions of what God said about what was permissible and what was not permissible. She was dependent to be taught by Adam what God had instructed. 
She was reliant upon, in that moment, the learning instructions from Adam. That we believe that they were both equal, equal in the sight of God, equal in being created in a reflection of the glory of God, and equal to co-labor and co-rule together. But initially she's in a place of learning from Adam. That these Ephesian women were in this historical moment dependent upon men for learning sound doctrine and sound understanding. Because they had had no access to education and learning from the scriptures. What Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus is right now what is needed is to learn in quiet submission Otherwise, you are teaching men and women without understanding. Do not believe that this is necessarily intending to be a ban for all places, all cultures and (coughs) all times. Paul is saying what is necessary right now is this. Women learn quietly. Be properly grounded in the truth first. So he's saying, presently, until this happens, this is what some commentators are saying as an interpretation of these verses, you could say it, I do not permit a woman to have authority, could be translated, presently, until this learning happens, I do not permit right now. So the principle that we can guard from this is to raise high standards on who is allowed to pass on biblical truth (coughs) and an understanding that Paul is addressing to that community what is needed right now. And so the next one is 1 Timothy 3. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. He must be in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, How can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience They must first be tested and then see if there is nothing against them. Let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his household and his household, manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent understanding or excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. So the first thing to understand from 1 Timothy 3 is that in the ancient Greek language, it's primarily a male language. So it means that even when the writer is addressing both men and women in an audience, it speaks only in masculine terms and only will address Brothers, And so often you find that in your Bible it says, dear brothers, and then you go into the bottom in the footnotes, it says brothers and sisters. So Paul, using a very natural convention of the time, would only speak in masculine terms whilst addressing both brothers and sisters. It was a male-centred culture, that's the backdrop Men predominantly would have been the leaders because they would have been the only one educated and trained in that culture. So men naturally in this moment of historical time dominated the scene of Christian leadership. It mirrored the culture. 
So a question we have to ask is, how much significance should be given to that historic moment now? Just because it was the way it was then, does that mean that's for all times and all places and should be that way now? Just because something was, doesn't mean it always was meant to be. And we can see that with the issue of slavery. And you can listen to Rochelle's talk from last week on historical trajectory and how things were breaking out in the New Testament. In other words, is there enough in 1 Timothy 3 to be prescriptive and legally established, or is it merely describing what was happening in that cultural moment? (coughs) Indeed, if you read the text, the barring or the exclusion of women was not explicitly stated. So if it was going to be prescriptive and legally binding for all places at all times, the barring of women needs to be explicitly stated to be convincing as a legal or prescriptive command to exclude women. We can't just assume that women were excluded for all times and all places because of the male language, because that's the only language they would have communicated with. Interestingly, the New Testament gives no names or no examples of elders anywhere in the New Testament. There are no named elders. There's a deacon, Phoebe, but there are no named elders. And interestingly, the same male language is used to describe deacons, but we know that Phoebe, a woman, was a deacon. Also, interestingly, Paul introduces the chapter. Now the over... um, Verse 1 is not here. Not here. (laughs) (coughs) Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Interestingly, Paul introduces chapter 3 with a gender-exclusive form of anyone rather than any man. If anyone desires the office of overseer, it's a feminine form of language. Now, that is not absolute categorical... That is not categorical proof of the inclusion of women, but it's an interesting observation that he should choose a feminine form in the beginning. Some people say, what about the statement, one woman man, or faithful to one woman? Actually, that would be apparently on lots of gravestones of men. It would say, one woman man. That was not a requirement that elders should be married, but was expressing the virtue of faithfulness that needs to be found in a man if he is going to be appointed as an overseer. In other words, it could not have been a universal requirement for men to be married if they were to become an overseer. Otherwise, you'd have a problem with what about widows? What about the divorced? And what about the unmarried? What about Paul? And what about Jesus? You'd have trouble there. Interestingly, in the book of Titus, to conclude this section, in the book of Titus, where Paul is talking to Titus about the list of requirements and character traits that an overseer needs to have, he also opens with the gender-inclusive feminine word, anybody, rather than any man. And it's also very interesting that when Paul writes to Titus, He does not include any prohibition or any legal statement that a woman can't have authority or teach. In that context, he doesn't speak about that. So that further undergirds and under (coughs) reinforces the fact that Paul is addressing a very, very (coughs) specific context Katia in Adams, who's married to Julian Adams, 
has written a book called Equal, and it's really a great little summary. And I just wanted to read you these things because it's quite funny what she says. She says, if you want to be dogmatic in your conclusion, if you want to be dogmatic in your exclusion of women, then please be equally dogmatic in all your exclusions. I wonder why I wonder why we often find it more important <laughs> to be dogmatic on a stipulation not present in the text rather than dogmatic on the stipulations that are present for all to see. So, if you are a church leader who believes that women should not be excluded if you are a church leader who believes that women should be excluded from overseeing eldership, please ensure that either yourself, please ensure that neither yourself nor anyone on your eldership teams falls into any of these categories. So she says, make sure that no one on your team are men who are not married. Make sure there are no men who have been widowed or remarried. For we cannot literally use one woman man as an argument for the exclusion of women if we are still then not to follow it further literal translation to exclude those who have been with more than one woman, whatever the reason. You have to exclude men who are divorced and have been remarried, men who are married but don't have children, because having children is included in the list, men who are married but only one child would have to be excluded, because note that all the verses in relation to children are plural. (laughs) Men who have children who are rebellious, that's in which, of, which parent of a toddler or teenager would be exempt from this, I wonder? <laughs> men who have children who are not saved, which would presumably mean men with very young children are excluded, because how can they prove that their children are saved? Men who are not hospitable. This might not be fashionable in our current day understanding of introverts, but any elder who are not opening their homes to people in the community stand in direct contradiction to this. Men who are quarrelsome or violent, men who drink too much alcohol, who is to set the bar on this? I wonder, I know a number of church leaders who drink more alcohol than the medically recommended limit. (laughs) Um, Men who are recent converts. And we see, actually in Acts, as Paul went around and appointing elders into local churches, <coughs> he actually appointed um, new converts into those new churches because they had to be new converts because they were new churches. Yeah. And the final one, men who are not self-controlled. Uh, I'm going to be talking about um, this whole area of <coughs> consistency across scripture. It's not a question as such, um, but the importance that if we are going to go for what is termed a complementarian approach... You, um, which is that we have assigned roles and that men lead and women submit and follow, then we need to be consistent if we go that approach. Um, now, it's helpful to explain where I've come from is that I have, uh, I grew up in a church where it was, was male only leadership and I um, basically accepted that. Uh, I understood it from my understanding of scripture at the time and have really held that view for many years. Um, uh, But uh, over the past past few years, and and, uh, reading other stuff, uh, that has been challenged, and uh, it's it's been quite a long journey for me to come to a different viewpoint. And primarily it is about consistency for me, across the whole of Scripture. Uh, You can take individual verses uh, and argue one way or the other. But I think when, for me, as I look at the whole of Scripture and what God's purpose in the whole of Scripture is about, I've come uh, to the understanding that actually uh, it would be wrong to exclude somebody from doing a job on the basis of their gender. So, um, but it is true to say that it is difficult to argue one way or other from Scripture. And, and, And you've heard Jamie and we've heard over the first few weeks looking at individual passages of Scripture... Um, but it's not also fair to say that we have these conflicts in other aspects of doctrine. One of the ones that is particularly, um, well, it's a number, but one uh, that I know Christians disagree on 
is can you lose your salvation? Um, or are you once saved, always saved? Now, I've done a study on this and a few times I've heard various preachers and um, I'm firmly <coughs> believing that once you are saved, you cannot lose your salvation. That is my standpoint. However, there are other Christians, and I've had discussions even in this church recently, that hold a different viewpoint, that they do believe that actually there is a possibility of losing your salvation. And there are verses in the Bible that would sort of suggest that. And when you look at these two, you have to then uh, understand uh, the context, again, that were written in, what the writer was trying to say, and, uh, and you come down one side or the other. So there are a number of places in the Bible where um, they, they are, if you like, open to interpretation. Now, um, I'm not going to say to a Christian that believes they can lose their salvation that they're wrong, because um, I, I think they are, because I think... Uh, but actually, that is that they are genuinely saved, and they can... Um, uh, but they can still hold that view. Now, I, I, it, it challenges all sorts of issues with the consistency of Scripture for me, that, that viewpoint, um, and I will talk to people about that. I don't want to go into detail. Um, uh, um, but actually, for me, and I, when I was looking at this whole subject, for me, that type of issue was more important um, than the issue of uh, whether women can, can be leaders in the church or be elders. And the reason for me that was more important was because actually holding a view that you can lose your salvation actually challenges a whole load of stuff um, about my, my belief in God and, and his sovereignty and all that. Whereas, um, and actually I decided this was far more important an issue for me than whether we have women leaders or elders. Because actually, um, women uh, being elders, can I still preach the gospel? Yes. Can I still... Uh, um, you know, hold the, the, the wonderful truths of, of the gospel uh, to my heart. Yes, I can. But if I have to go down the church route where <coughs> I, um, I have to uh, go along with you can lose your salvation, actually, I'm, that really challenges how I preach the gospel and how I hold on to the, the truths of the faith. Anyway, that's a, a bit of an aside. And so when we look at Verses for male-only leadership, we would have to ignore others that um, can be interpreted in a different way. And then you have to ask yourself, which ones do you interpret and which ones do you take absolutely literally? And Jamie uh, has been talking about that. Now, one of the issues, one of the uh, commonly held um, uh, beliefs in the church today is women can do everything except be elders um, and leaders of the church. Okay? So that, that is a commonly held view across many churches. Now this is a very problematic viewpoint, and this is a, to be honest, a view that I held for many years. Uh, and this is problematic mainly for the reasons that Jamie was talking about earlier. Because there are verses in the Bible that if you uh, take literally, then you know, the one we talk about, you know, I don't um, permit women to teach or have authority over a man, Actually, they must remain silent. How do you marry that with being able to preach and teach and speak? Um, so you have to then reinterpret that one, but you don't need to reinterpret the one that follows on, which is what Jamie was talking about. So there's inconsistency there. You have to then decide which ones you go for. And so when we start um, applying these verses literally, you get into all sorts of consistency problems. Um, and I do not believe that is what God intended. For me, the issue must come down to God's purpose in creation, that co-leadership, men and women together, ruling, restoring what was there before the fall. See, we are new creations. We're no longer sin-bound. And it comes down to what gifting each person has and if it's a leadership gift, how that leadership gift is exercised. <coughs> Has that person got a clear gifting to lead, and do they seek to model a Christ-like leadership, which is servanthood, sacrificial, releasing, and empowering? Now, we want to avoid a domineering, self-serving leadership model. 
what we've been talking about. But both men and women can exhibit that. And whether the leader is male or female is not the issue. Both are wrong. And so we cannot assign that to a particular gender. We can have a domineering man or a domineering woman, and both are wrong. So consistency can't be about applying the letter of the text exactly as it is written, because you end up in knots and it doesn't work. Consistency is about looking at the overall purpose of God, bringing all things together under Christ in unity, equality, love and freedom. And I believe this is best expressed by not having a structure that forbids certain roles to certain people based on gender or age or ethnicity, but based only on gifting and character. So, now we're going into 1 Corinthians 11, um, verse 3, and the question here is, doesn't 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, contradict our rejection of hierarchy. So because last week, you know, remember I've been saying that we don't want to be in a hierarchical church. And then we have this difficult verse, okay, and actually, arguably, <coughs> this verse is really the most significant dispute concerning the meaning of the word head. So we're going to have a little look at that. So it says here, um, I might have a different version than you, but now I come on you because you remember me in everything and maintain the tradition even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And then so it goes on. So basically, <coughs> this little burst has the biggest dispute over this issue of the head of. And actually, complementarian Piper and Gruden view the term head as being translated as authority over. That means, effectively, they're creating a hierarchy, which means that God has authority over Christ and is the ruler of Christ, and Christ is the ruler of every man, and man is the ruler and has authority over woman. So that is the complementarian perspective. Very interestingly speaking, if you read this particular paragraph in 1 Corinthians 11 from verse 2 to verse 16, the whole passage is about head covering. But what is lifted is just that line. Okay? But the context of this is head covering. And it starts by, I command you for, for carrying on this practice, notice the word practice, and it finished by, judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to have her head covered or not covered? Yeah? So it's kind of a practice that Paul is addressing, and it's about head covering. The irony is actually even complementarian um, people who argue that there is a hierarchical order with people ruling over others and a, 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 basically an order of God, um, Christ, man and woman, even those guys completely drop the head covering. So they're not applying the passage about head covering in their church. But they still take this little line to say there is a creation order. Okay, Now, Many church fathers, and it's really widespread, uh, completely reject, and that's quite a strong rejection. There are some passages, that there's a lot of battle, but for this particular passage of 1 Corinthians 11 verse uh, 3, many church fathers would say that's a completely wrong interpretation of 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3. For this reason, if you take head as authority rule over, you basically imply that God is over Christ, and Christ is eternally the subordinate of God the Father. <coughs> and actually, that's one of the heresy that is, you know, not acceptable. So basically, uh, I've got this quote, only a heretic would understand Paul's use of head to mean chief or authority offer. Rather, one should understand here that the term imply absolute oneness and cause and primal source. 
Okay, so let me just dig a little bit in that. As mentioned a little bit last week, an alternative um, interpretation for the word head in the Bible, which is definitely the correct one for this passage, uh, is uh, the one of source, primary source. So, uh, for example, Gordon Fee would say that head means source or source of life. And here is Gordon Fee saying about 1 Corinthians uh, 11 verse 3, he will, he will say, Paul's concern is not hierarchical, meaning who has authority over whom, but relational, a unique relationship that is predicated upon one's being the source of another one existent. And actually, if you carry on reading the passage, it's very well illustrated because you carry on reading and there, there, there's a, um, a description of the chronological, chronological sequence of who was created first. So it follows the narration of uh, Genesis in the sense that, you know, uh, the source of every man is Christ, and then the source of woman is man as created, and the source of Christ in his incarnation is God. Okay? So the meaning is not I'm ruling over, but actually I first came into existence. I'm the primary source of existence. I came first. Okay? Interestingly, even in that argument, and if you read that passage really in detail, <coughs> Paul makes this argument about source and then reverse the fields and make an argument for interdependency right in the middle of it. So verse 11 and verse 12, you could see, you could read. However, in the Lord... Woman is not independent of man, nor is the man independent of woman. For woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Okay? So it, it's clearly talking about a chronological order. And actually, actually, he's saying, okay, I know that at the end, man will be born from woman. Okay? Um, so this passage, overall... It's not really, if you read the context, it's not at all about the structure of the church as it is, but about a practice of uh, uh, head covering. It covers the idea, and I think it was very cultural at the, at the point, that if a woman shave her head, uh, she would dishonor her husband, literally, because in the context, um, you know, if you were a woman and shave your head, you were basically a prostitute at those times. So there's a lot of, you know, uh, issues like that. In the church, however, what, what is very, very clear is, uh, and many passages focus on that, is that Jesus is the head of the whole body of Christ. That we know. So Jesus is the head of both man and woman. So when we read a little verse like this, instead of doing really a creation order principle, we put it in connection with all the verses and try to have meanings. So, for example, even if we were connecting this to Ephesians 5, verse 22, uh, where husbands are, comparing, uh, are compared to Christ, yes? Uh, basically, we've got Christ, head of his bride, and man, the head of his wife. But again, the concept of headship there, the objective is love and unity. Actually, even that section of the Bible starts about be like God, love, and then describe the relationship that should be in marriage. He's basically saying, come on, husband, be like Christ. Lay down your life for your wife. Protect the unity. <coughs> Protect the unity between you. And basically, the centrality is, is love, unity in marriage, and love and unity <coughs> in the church. So therefore, even here, the headship of husband is sacrificial love, servanthood, releasing and empowering their woman as source of life, and they model themselves on Jesus. And the question is, how do we balance wives submitting to their husbands with women leading a church? Okay. So if we quickly read that passage, um, so Ephesians 5.21... says so there, submit to one another out of reverence of Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so the wives should submit to their husbands in everything. 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife <coughs> loves himself. And after all, no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Okay. So, in, uh, in the first reading of this, uh, you, it would appear that there is a, some sort of hierarchy of order in marriage, that wives submit to the husband who is the head. Uh, but the verse before this has a requirement on each person to submit to each other. In this, there is no male or female, husband or wife. It is a universal instruction. So straight away, if we're not careful, we can see a conflict and come down on one side. If we take the verses without context, we might say that wives must submit to their husbands, but husbands don't need to submit to wives. But by saying this, we immediately contradict the verse before. So we need to understand what Paul is driving at. And again, it comes back to context, and, uh, and Jamie's been talking about this as well, and, and Rochelle. So in, in the world at the time, the, uh, the Greco-Roman world, husbands, fathers and masters held absolute unquestioned authority. The household code of the time had a completely one-sided approach. Only those who were in authority were addressed. Qualities such as love and self-sacrifice would have been challenging and offensive to many of the readers. The headship of husbands to wives is likened to the headship of Christ as saviour of the church. Self-sacrifice for the benefit of others and unending love. He does not use words about leading or having authority over in this passage, but rather presents the parallel idea of submission and sacrifice and love and respect with clarity. The way Paul previously uses the picture of Christ as head of the church is not primarily a picture of authority over the church, but rather a picture of the unity that the church has with Christ and the empowerment to the church brought by that union. That the church might grow and be built up in every way into him. See, using the illustration of Christ and the church makes it extremely doubtful that Paul is instructing wives to submit, to, to submit because the husband is her authoritative leader. There is no command for a husband to exercise authority over his wife. Paul was challenging the issues of the day. Husbands lording it over the wives, almost as, as they owned them. Wives wanting to usurp, manipulate and scheme. Which goes back to Genesis 3. Both of these attitudes are challenged. Not to establish one as over the other, but a way of uniting the two. Now, I do believe there is a way of operating in a marriage that works based on these verses. I do not exercise authority over my wife, but I do have responsibility to sacrifice for the good of my wife and my family. <coughs> I know I have my wife's respect, and I try to love her as Christ loved the church. We, I, often don't live up to that, but we seek to live this out by his spirit. But in addition to that, I also recognise that God has given uh, Katrina a great deal of wisdom. And submitting to her in that has significantly benefited our marriage and family. And I know that my wife loves me. But if you look at verses 22 to, to 30, both those aspects are not covered. But that doesn't mean they don't apply and are not necessary in a marriage. These verses were addressing a specific issue. And if you ignore verse 21 and take the verses literally without considering other passages, I could take the view that as a husband, what I say goes, and my wife should just lump it or like it. 
I don't think I'm going to try that. <laughs> that is clearly not what Paul is saying. So whilst they are responsibilities talked about in these verses, they do not establish a hierarchy or one having authority over the other. But even if we establish there is a difference in a marriage relationship, does this translate to male-only leadership in a church? I don't believe it does. The verses say that Christ is head of the church, not that Christ is head of the church and that men are head over the church as well. You cannot argue for two heads from these verses. We are all the church with Christ as the head. We are all the priesthood, all offering spiritual sacrifices to God in whatever role and gifting he has assigned to us. The final thought in the passage, and this was very interesting when I looked at this, it culminates in talking about a mystery of being one flesh, male and female, Christ and the church. A hierarchy of man over women at that time was not a mystery. That's how it was. It was to be expected in the culture of Paul's day. But a union that leads to equality, now that was a profound mystery. Nothing is going to change immediately. So we recognise we've been on a journey for a number of years. And you guys need time to process too. And it's actually okay to disagree and have another perspective. As Tim said, we're not talking about the deity of Christ. We're not talking about the sufficiency of the cross. We're not talking about the virgin birth. We're not talking about was Jesus fully God or fully man. We're talking about something that is significantly of lesser importance. It's actually okay to disagree. It's actually okay to go on your own journey as well. It's okay for you to read we can give you the books and you can read them too. It's okay to investigate. It's okay to explore. And it's okay to ask lots and lots of questions. I'm really happy to meet with anybody individually to talk and discuss. What I'd really suggest is if you want to meet and talk and discuss these things, could you maybe read the paper that we've written first? Or maybe if reading is not necessarily your thing and you don't want to work through the paper, maybe make sure that you've listened to all, all the talks, or if you're listening online now, to listen to all the questions and all the answers, and then ping us a text, and I'd be really happy to meet 